Oh, well, you can live on it. But it tastes like shit. <sighs> Welcome to the Since Right Now Addiction Recovery Podcast, the podcast of clean and sober, K-L-E-N and S-O-B-R, and SinceRightNow.com, with your hosts in recovery, Jeff, Matt, and Chris. Tonight's guest... Jason Smith, author of The Bitter Taste of Dying. Tonight on Since Right Now, our guest is uh, Jason Smith. And at the moment, his the two, the two big uh, moves he's making in the recovery sphere. One, he just released his uh, recovery memoir, The Bitter Taste of Dying. And two, he's just launched uh, as the creative director, and I don't know who your partners are, or your partner, uh, the real edition, real vice, real life. Is that right, Jason? <laughs> no, I'm not, I'm not even sure what the tagline says. Oh, okay. Um, it, but yeah, I mean, it's essentially, it's a collection. It's, it's for people to write in recovery because it, it, it was so valuable for me. So sort of trying to share that. And uh, I mean, that's the real edition has taken off out of the gate. Um, I don't know if we want to go there first. It's sort of uh, sort of at the end of the story in a way. Um, but uh, I mean, you have so many contributors right out of the gate on there. Yeah, I mean, the the, the response has been really good. Um, and I, I think once people sort of understand that they don't have to be a professional writer, it's not about that. It's this isn't this isn't. Um, know about who's the best writer it's about stories and storytelling and, and sharing experience and and uh you know my this whole thing this whole writing thing i've only been doing it for it's actually one year this month um since i started writing wow. and um it started with me walking into a local newspaper uh pitching a three-part series on heroin in my little town and um the you know the editor there dennis noon uh who was the editor of the paper at the time he let me run with it, and as a result, what I, what I, what I, what happened was the story came out, and it sort of went viral locally, and people were talking about it, and I started getting these emails from people. I'm just, I mean, I'm talking one, two hundred emails just from uh, people talking. Well, my my son's going through this, or I went through this, or my wife's going through this, and we don't know what to do. Um, and then they would tell me their story, and I knew from writing part three of that series is where I make it a personal, um, it's more of my personal journey. Um, I knew how cathartic that is and how therapeutic that felt. Mm -hmm. And so knowing that they were getting that out of writing an email to me, um, made me want to sort of facilitate somewhere for that to occur somewhere for that sort of magic to happen of, of, you know, a couple broken people coming together and healing each other. And so that's the goal. Anyway, we'll, we'll see, you know, that, I mean, that it, you guys know how it is. You never know what these types of things. So hopefully, you know, hopefully uh, we continue to get contributions. And, um, you know, in the meantime, you know, we're just kind of put one foot in front of the other. My partner, uh, Matt Mendoza, um, who is a fantastic business partner, uh, you know, he's he's the reason there's a site right now. Um, uh, you know, he's the reason 
that there's somewhere for these people to go write their stories. So um, he's, he's absolutely a huge part of this. Is, is he in recovery or will we out him if, if we discuss it? <laughs> Um, I, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about what he's written. Um, he's written, he wrote a story on his, his, his experience. And actually what, what's kind of funny is, so, um, your site ran my Tijuana jail story. Right. And that, that story was originally posted on medium. That was one of the, the first stories I wrote. Um, he saw it and he actually had his own experience of getting arrested in Mexico. And so he reached out to me saying, hey, you know, loved the story. Uh, something similar happened to me. And we got to talking. And that was actually the, the beginning of our relationship. And so our relationship was sort of born out of this uh, two people being arrested in Mexico. Um, <laughs> awesome. And, you know, now look at we've got this this beautiful website that people are contributing to. But, you know, the, the genesis, the origins of it were were less than pretty. You know, neither of us, had, both of us were addicted to uh, drugs at the time and both of us kicked in a jail cell. Wow. And so um, it was that connection, actually, that connection out of something broken and something ugly. And now it's it's the opportunity to make something beautiful out of that. And I mean, I, I think that's a great metaphor, sort of a, a great metaphor for recovery in general. Yeah, I mean, that's absolutely it. You have to have gone what you, you went through. You have to accept that to appreciate sort of what you have now, what to really appreciate recovery. Uh, yeah. I mean, when you go without, when you, when, you know, I, I, I don't shop for milk the same anymore. I mean, when I go, when I go to the store for milk today, I remember vividly. Uh, having you know a small child who needed a gallon of milk um, and buying the little carton of milk because I, I wanted to save the money for drugs like I remember I remember that and so now when I go shopping I really appreciate buying a full gallon of milk you know but I never would have before had I not gone through that experience of, of sort of um, you know just letting letting life take you know just sort of putting everything on the back burner for drugs including my own family mm -hmm. the uh for just being a year at this writing game you you are a terrific writer what uh you must have had some influences or something to, uh to hang your head on before you started this you know i mean i i have a college degree in history and, and history history requires you know it's a, it's a subject that requires a lot of writing but um as far as the personal narrative uh, style and things like that. Uh, the, by far, probably the best class I ever have taken in high school or college was typing. Monotonous, <laughs> mundane. But looking back, it's probably the best class I ever took because I can I can type pretty much the speed that I can think. It's very conversational, and I think that's what makes it so uh, readable, really engaging. I really like sort of stripping everything down and just giving it to the reader kind of raw. Yeah. Yeah, no, but nothing has lost at all. I mean, just based on Tijuana Tale, it's just that's a gut punch, um, you know, with just the words you used. So, I have a story. I wrote I wrote a different story called Confessions of a Drug Addicted High School Teacher. Right. Yes, and um, it's about a three year period where I was pretty heavy into fentanyl and Norco while I was teaching high school. Yeah, and um, the the story got the felt the the rights got purchased by Bob Levy who's the producer for Vampire Diaries. Mm. At this point, I really look at life from the perspective that I'm playing with house money. Right. Yeah. You know, I'm playing with house money at this point, and so anything good that comes my way, it allows me to sort of really just sit back and enjoy it. Can we back up and, and get a little bit of the story that led up to this point in life um, where you are playing with house money, which is you know a wonderful place to find yourself. Um, can we just 
maybe talk about a bit of, of how you ended up where you are now. Yeah, I realize that a lot of this is, is in the bitter taste of dying, I'm sure, but um, just the, the high points and the low points, maybe. Um, yeah, I mean, I got, I'm your typical sort of millennial tale of um, getting hooked on drugs the legal route. Um, I, I, when I was 17, I'd never even smoked pot. And, uh, you know, I was an athlete, I was a football player. And uh, when I got in a car accident, they had to do an operation on my spine and put a cage in there. And, and they kind of loaded me up with the medication. And, and from day one, I was in love with it. Like, I loved the way it made me feel. And I would spend the next 16 years chasing that, that first high, that, that, that high in the hospital when they shot me up with the dilaudid, that high. That's, that's the high I was chasing all those years. And um, on the outside, I was able to sort of hold it together. You know, I was kind of able to look the part of a productive member of society. I graduated college and I would kind of just dumb luck my way into these really cool jobs. Um, and, and I talk about it in the book, you know, when I was teaching English in the Czech Republic or um, when I was working for a company in Shanghai um, or living in Italy. Like there were these. Wow. So on the, on the outside, it looked like I had my shit together, um, but I could never hold it together. And so, you know, there's a there's a story um, in in the book. Uh, it's called "The Lawyers Maybe Change the Chapter" uh, title because the company that I work for um, is a big American company. I, I don't. I imagine I can hint toward <laughs> that, that direction. You know, they're 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 based. You know, it's a very it's a very California. It's a very magical place. Right. Oh, that way. Okay. I see. And uh, say no more. So this magical uh, place really. <laughs> Uh, their goal was, is to sort of inundate Chinese children with English using songs from their movies. Mm. And, um, <laughs> and so that was my job was to direct the school. And I think we had probably 12 uh, English teachers and 12 Chinese teachers. And I was in charge of this group. And they hired me. Like, they hired me over the phone. And I don't know how they hired me because I was just out of jail. <laughs> and uh, I had just gotten out of jail. And I was on probation. I had a suspended driver's license. I got two DUIs in one night in a public intoxication. Jeez. And so um, I'd gotten uh, out of jail. And they, I sent my resume off almost as like a goof. And thinking like, well, we'll you know, we'll see what happens. And they called me back. And so we did the interview over the phone and mind you, this is all over the phone. So mm. like I'm they all they see is my resume, which at this point looks impressive. They don't see who I am as a person. And, um, they, the, the interview went really well. And they said, um, you know, we're going to do a background check. Is there anything that might pop up? And I said, no, <laughs> no, I don't think. And I'm still like, I still smell like jail, you know, yeah. like jail. And uh, I said, no, you know, I'm thinking, what's the worst that can happen? They're not going to hire me anyway. So I I said no. And two days later, this guy, Neil, he calls me up and and he says, uh, you know, we have a ticket for you to Shanghai. And so I I arrive in Shanghai and I mean, the disease of addiction, this is where it took me. Like my first before I had a place to stay, I learned the Chinese medical system. I learned how to game it. I learned how to uh, just sort of infiltrate it and manipulate it. And it was so, I mean, once it, it took me two days and, um, it wasn't long before the mag, that magical corporation realized they'd made like a colossal mistake. <laughs> and there's a story, there's a story in the book about what happened. You got to read it. Yeah. Um, uh, but it's, it, it's, it's about my last day with that company and it wasn't pretty, you know, <laughs> but those are the depths, you know, those, I can laugh about it now, but at sure. the time. 
God, I was so dead inside. Yeah. Of course. I mean, that's it's funny. Like, I can't even read a Chinese menu, and you get to China and figure out the medical how to get how to get drugs in Chinese in two days. Yeah, I, that totally checks out. Well, that your totally priorities were sound and in place. <laughs> right. That's yeah, awesome. I mean, it was it was uh, my 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 go to there was um, was Percocet and Xanax, and then I was able to score fentanyl off this one doctor, but he was never. He'd never worked. I don't know what that guy had the best work schedule, but he was never there. Um, but yeah, it, it was, I mean, it, and it, it was, you know, that's just what for me anyway, like uh, all the good I could have done, <laughs> you know, or all the positive I could have done while on that amazing experience that so many people would give anything to have. Like I use it to just go and get, get high. And it's, it's kind of sad. Well, yeah, we can all relate. Yeah, I think. I, I think, mean, without question, yeah. categorically, absolutely, I you know, squandered opportunity is oh, the name of the game, and yeah. feeling like you lead a little bit of a you know a charmed life. Like, yeah. why do good things keep happening to me, and I'm just kind of fumbling my way through, just doing the 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 bare minimum, mm. um, and sometimes less, but and yet you know <laughs> you get these great opportunities. It's really, um, I think we can all relate. But yeah, and that's what every single person in my family and friends were thinking at the time. Like, why does this good shit keep happening to Jason? Like, of, of everybody, <laughs> why? of everybody, good stuff could happen to. Uh, why does it keep happening to him? Yeah. And and you know, and I can imagine how just frustrating that must have been to watch. So, and I know this is always a tricky question, but um, is uh, is the addiction have? Um, precedent in your gene pool yes okay yes um my dad's side of the family is um he at one point had um seven brothers and sisters uh two of them have died from overdoses um oh uh, opiate one heroin uh and one a morphine and um in fact the the very the title of the book comes from the first chapter of the book which is me i was 14 and um we were, my family was building a house and my uncle, who was an amazing carpenter, but also a, a hardcore intravenous heroin user, wow. um, came up because he wanted to get clean. And my dad had him come up and he was going to help us build this house. And my uncle, man, he was a good guy. Like he, he held it together for a few months. And looking back, I see he I mean, just white knuckling it like that. I imagine how just torturous that must have been at times. Um, but my parents left for a weekend. This is a few months in. And they, I mean, everybody thought at the time, they thought my uncle would be all right. And, uh, I woke up in the morning and I found him dying and uh, he had a needle in his arm and, and he was, yeah. he had overdosed and I didn't know what to do. He wasn't dead. He was still breathing. Yeah. And I was afraid to call the police because I didn't want him to get in trouble. And so I kind of just pulled up a chair and watched. Jesus. And, uh, how old were you? 14? I was 14. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And so I'm watching this all go down and uh, I watch his breathing change, and eventually he starts foaming out of the mouth, and he falls on the ground. And I and I call 911 at that point, and I start giving him CPR. And there was that taste—I'll never forget that taste of of, of his body dying, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, it kind of stains the memory. Sure. And um, so that's where the title of the book comes from, because um, if you fast forward in my own life about 10 years. Um, there's a chapter title called uh, How to Say I'm Fucked in French. <laughs> and uh, that's about I overdosed on Oxycontin and Xanax when I was in Nice, France. Wow. I, was, I was directing, a, I was actually the linguistics director for a, 
a school called uh, Language Without Borders. I'm totally just going with the real names that the publisher made me change. So oh, well, uh, anybody, it's all right. Uh, I can be you guys. Um, no, it's, 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 they're not in business anymore. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, I'm kidding. But, um, they, uh, you know, so I, I overdosed in France and, um, it, it was, it was really a tragically comic scene. I mean, there's these romantic candlelight dinners by the beach and these couples and these newlyweds. And then here I come. Uh, high on Oxy and Xanax, just stumbling through knocking chairs around like some kind of Godzilla. And uh, I collapsed on the floor. And as I, the last thing I remember was the taste. Hmm. And it, and my body was producing what my what had happened to my uncle. And I, re, I remember it because it's the only time I had ever tasted it. And so that, that kind of tie, that's kind of the full circle there of the book is, is you know, I, that that's where the, the name of the book comes from, The Bitter Taste of Dying, wow. because it was a bitter, gritty taste and all yeah. I tasted it, and I tasted his. Did you ever put two and two together? Like seeing this scene when you were 14, and then when you got hooked four or five years later, did, did this ever occur to you that this was what was happening to you? No, because I was I always rationalized it with, well, it comes from a doctor. It's not the same. You yeah, know, mm-hmm. I, it comes from a doctor. It's not the same. I need it from my back. Uh, you know, I, that I, there was always that rationalization. I think maybe subconsciously I knew. I mean, I would overdosed a few times. And, um, you know, really, I, I was really more strung out at times on my on the drug abuse than anybody I ever saw on heroin. Um, but I refused to, to let it go there. I refused to to acknowledge that it was the same thing, you know, at the time, because that was my that was my way of differentiating myself from my uncle. Wow. Um, and, and, and that's. I'm sure that rationalization is familiar too to all of us and to a lot of people. You know, as well, at least I never used a needle, or at mm-hmm. least I, you know, kept kept on the right side of the law in my mind's eye because I wasn't doing something illegal and I wasn't dealing with the criminal element or whatever it was. But at the end of the day, we're really it's it's a completely level you're playing still field. Fucked. Yeah, you're still fucked. Yeah. <laughs> so, so what was the what what was the end for you? When did you finally? Uh, Man, I wish I could say that was the. I mean, there were so many bottoms that I should have had. Mm. Uh, there's a Tijuana jail. You know, there's that niece overdose left me sleeping in a train station with no passport uh, for two weeks. You know, it, there should have been so many bottoms. Um, but really, my bottom was uh, a night when um, I overdosed on Thanksgiving in 2012, and uh, I decided I didn't want to live anymore. And I went home, and I, I, I talk about it in the book. I, I tried to sort of cut my wrists and just kind of lay in some warm water. Mm. And I woke up. And, like, I remember feeling that feeling of, like, oh, my God, like, I can't do anything right. Mm. Like, I can't, you know, and, and it's, I think it's important to look at that last night because I was alone in a dark apartment trying to kill myself. Mm-hmm. And if I think back to the first time I used or the first time I used it to get high, it made me social. It made me part of a group. It made me feel like I belonged. It, 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 it connected me with everybody else that for whatever reason up to that point I'd felt disconnected with. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you fast forward 16 years, the same drugs, the drugs didn't change. Right. Nothing changed in the, in the chemical makeup of the drugs. Like that was the same product. Uh, that same drug was making me want to die by myself in an apartment because I couldn't live. Wow. And if there's any, I don't know if there's a, a better sort of 
visual of where the drugs eventually took me, you know, or will take you. Yeah, no, I mean, it's a powerful point. And so it's, uh, but so that night, I, I, I just remember I was, my bottom was a spiritual bottom, a spiritual and a, a sort of an emotional and psychological bottom where I was just empty inside, where there were, I'd had deeper bottoms physically, like I'd been in worse places. I, I'd been in jail in Mexico. I slept in stations. I'd been homeless. But Throughout all that, there was still something, a little bit of fight left inside me, a little bit of humanity left inside me. And I said, no, I can get a handle on this. And, and so there was, you know, as long as that little bit of, of fight and, and, you know, some people call it denial. Mm. Um, but to me, it was just that was my human spirit, what it was telling me. Um, no, I can keep going. I can keep going. Where at the end, that voice was gone and I didn't have it anymore. Yeah. And I think that that's what allowed me to sort of surrender to the to the fact that. Um, I, I can't do this. I, I can't, I can't take drugs and be normal. Like I, I, you know, I just can't. And so that was my bottom. It was, it was a real sort of, you know, I had a place to live. I had a car, I had those things, but my bottom was a spiritual bottom, just a complete yeah. nothingness inside. Yeah. And so that was it. You, you just said, I can't do this anymore. And just sort of white knuckled your way for the next couple of days. No, actually, and I don't, I, I don't, I didn't have a chance to really explain it in the book. Yeah. Um, but I actually, I went to, I called around for different rehabs, and I got one that called me back from Modesto, California. And Modesto, California is not a nice place. Mm-hmm. It's not, oh. it's hot. It's San Joaquin Valley. It's, it's where know, they make Mad Dog 2020, too. I don't know that's why right. I know that. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I went there, and uh, I went there on December 1st. And, um, the, the room was pretty dirty. Like there was a lot of using going on at this rehab. And um, I remember I, I took some of the drug, some of the pills that one of the patients were hiding in their room and I got caught. Hmm. And so they threw me out on December 11th. And I remember driving home thinking, oh my God, like, what am I going to tell people? What am I going to tell my family? What am I going to tell my, you know, mm-hmm. I got kicked out of rehab after 10 days. Yeah. And I turned the car around and I went and I slept in my car that night and I went to the corporate office and I said, look, I messed up. Um, I need help. And that was really sort of the point when I realized, like, I need to do this. And so that was December 11th. So my, my clean date is 12, 12, 12. Wow. Um, and, and that's, you know, that that's the last time I, I put, you know, that into my body. And so, um, but yeah. And so, I mean, rehab was great. Rehab, I mean, rehab's rehab. Um, I, it didn't save my life, but it stopped me from dying. Um, I then went, as soon as I got out, I went, started going to meetings and that's when I met my sponsor, Brian, who's, who's in the book. Um, well, actually I had met Brian before that, but, or talked to him on the phone before that. But, um, you know, that's when I just, for me personally, I kind of d- sort of dug my heels in and, and, um, started getting to work with the, with the 12 step program. And that's what worked for me. Yeah. And so, uh, and that's what's continuing to be your program you're still active sponsoring sponsored all that yeah yeah i sponsor um i i haven't you know i i was on ankle monitor for like uh almost this entire time almost this entire time i was writing that was kind of my writing was sort of a result of my home detention you know I, i was um all of the stuff all of the sort of stuff i did over the years got consolidated into one case and uh they gave me an eight-month sentence and so 
um, for eight, you know, from October of last year till just July 3rd recently is when the ankle, ankle monitor came off. Hmm. Wow. Um, it was all, I was sort of forced to sit down and write. I mean, there was nothing else to do. Yeah. Uh, and so um, it, it was actually, it actually probably benefited me in the mm -hmm. long term. And, but it was sort of just cleaning up that mess now. So, but because of that, I had, wasn't able to go to a whole lot of meetings. So now that I'm, now that I'm off, um, you know, I, I try to get to two or three a week. That's my goal. Yeah. Um, that, that's a yeah. great new, new way to get people to start writing is the old ankle <laughs> monitor. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's not a bad tactic. Well, it's amazing how those things work out. I mean, how it's, you know, serendipity, I guess. Yeah, it's everything. So when I got out of rehab, I started, uh, I didn't think I had any jail charges or anything. I thought I had kind of escaped everything. Mm -hmm. And, um, like my, my first year out of rehab, I went to probably three meetings a day. Like I was so yeah. gung ho because I was scared to death of not going to meetings. And, mm -hmm. um, about a year in, I got a letter from the district attorney of uh, the county that the people of California wanted to bring a case against me. And so, um, then, you know, I was actually more ready. I was so much more ready to deal with that a year at a year clean. Yeah. Yeah. than I would have been had they charged me right out. Right. And then going on the ankle monitor at, you know, a year and a half clean or two two years clean almost, um, and, and being on that for the last year has been, um, it, it all, like you said, serendipity. It, it, it's all sort of worked out the way it's supposed to. And so you mentioned much earlier on uh, the, the, the experience of buying milk. And you mentioned buying milk for a child. Throughout this, you've had a child or children um, through active addiction and rehab and re recovery? Yeah, so uh, the, I, in fact, before my fiasco in China, uh, I had met a young lady. Um, and when I got back from China, we started dating again and, and then we got pregnant. And I, I tell that, I think that's an important chapter. It's in a chapter titled Never Ask a Girl How She Got Pregnant. <laughs> and, uh, <sighs> Um, it, it sort of details my thinking at the time of, of oh my god I'm going to have a kid but I'm, I'm heavily addicted to narcotics what do I do um, and, and that transitions into okay well this could be a good thing right I, I, this will get me clean this will save me this will be what I needed um, and then it's okay it's time to get clean first month of pregnancy well I can't do it now because I got to get a job that has health insurance. So the baby's taken care of and I can't do that if I'm kicking. So I'll do it in a month from now or two months from now. And then three months later, it's okay, well, I got the job and we got the insurance, but now I can't lose it because, um, you know, we need the health care. And what would it look like if I show up to work? I'll do it three months from now. And then so fast forward to six months. Wow. And, and it's just, it's never a good time to the yeah. point where when the baby's born, um, you know, you would think that, that seeing a child would, your child be born would um, be this sort of uplifting, you know, this is what I needed to get mm -hmm. clean, to get my shit together. When in reality, it made me hate myself wow. on, a, on a level I'd never hated myself yeah, before because now, now I just brought an innocent child into this wreck of a life that I created. Yeah. And, what was, uh, yeah, what struck me was the, just the amounts of drugs you had to use to be, to just feel normal. I mean, reading that, that high school teacher story, and I'm sure all through this, it was just, and it wasn't like you were getting high anymore. You're just trying yeah. not, not to go into withdrawals. 
Yeah, gosh, that was so horrible. I remember, yes. I mean, the, the fentanyl took it to another level for me. Um, the fentanyl patches, when I was just wearing them on my skin, um, you know, I, I had such a high tolerance where I could put, you know, three or 400 micrograms on my skin and it would last me, you know, that would last me about four days with those patches. And so, um, at the, but the problem was it wasn't getting me high. It was just, it was, it was, uh, it, it just really kept me from being sick. And so add on to that, like the Norcos, for example, on top of that, and every once in a while, you know, the Norcos would give me a warm feeling, but for the most part, I was taking them just to take them. And uh, that's where I would get into trouble was because then I would want to, the opiates weren't doing it. I could not get any higher. Hmm. Uh, I was at my, my peak with the opiates. And so that's when I would bring in the benzos and the Xanax. And, that's amazing. Um, and that, that would send me off. Xanax would put me in jail. Like I, if I, if I went on, I would go on these Xanax blackouts where, um, you know, I, I, I mentioned it in the book, I'm like that dude Memento in that movie, Memento. <laughs> right. like I'm trying to backtrack the last week of my life with receipts and text messages. Oh. And, uh, you know, that's actually how I found out I got the public intoxication. I don't remember. I, 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 and I tell the story, I went upstairs to ask my neighbor apparently to use her phone and she said no. And I started picking up her shoe trying to make a phone call on it. <laughs> and I don't remember any of it, like none of oh, wow. it. And so that's what the Xanax would do. But that's the reason I would always go to the Xanax and the benzos would, because at least it was some kind of high. Mm. It was different than the opiate high. Um, but it was like my, the fentanyl made it so I had to have a, a really large amount of narcotics to feel normal. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want to feel normal. I wanted to feel anything but normal. Sure. Yeah. And it was almost like they turned on me. You know, they stopped mm -hmm. getting me high, but they still demanded that I do the, the yeah. dirty yeah. shit you got to do to keep, to yeah. keep them. And, um, you know, they, they turned on me. And so uh, that's when I would usually go to the Xanax and do something. You know, it just changed my personality completely. Crazy. And you didn't drink. You weren't a drinker. That's right. And no, I hated alcohol. I, I still don't like the, the smell of alcohol. It, it, it's, I just never liked it. So, I, in fact, that's probably why I'm still here. Right. Um, yeah. Because the, the amount of, of hydrocodone that I was taking with that, the acetaminophen, um, I was... If I had combined that with alcohol, I think my liver would be shot. Interesting. Um, and when I, in fact, when I got clean, when I was about a year and a half clean, uh, I finally, you know, sucked it up and went to the doctor and said, "Okay, I want my liver checked." Mm -hmm. And he said, "Why?" I said, "Because I, I had a, when I lived in China. I, had a, I mean, I was taking six or seven boxes of Percocet a day, and there were Holy ten a box." Shit. And I said, "I know that had to hurt my liver." And he said, yeah, that, that would probably hurt your liver. <laughs> yeah, it hurts my test. liver. <laughs> and so he did the tests, and, and I, I, he, they came back. He said, your liver is normal. Wow. I said, there's no way. Like, are you sure that was my liver you checked? Like, was it, <laughs> it makes up records? And uh, he said, no, your liver is normal. So I really feel like I, I, don't know, I don't know if my metabolism didn't digest something the right. I don't know. There's no good reason. There's no logical explanation that I've heard why. I, I'm my, my body's still functioning because you're right. I, I, I did. And I don't say that bragging. Like it's not right. something I'm sure. proud of. I had to take a lot of these pills to feel normal. Yeah. yeah. Heroic doses and fentanyl is, uh, you know, that's what they give. That's what they give women in labor. You know, it's, uh, that's, I, I had only taken it once. Yeah, it was probably the best for me. I mean, it was probably better for me than the hydrocodone in terms of physically, um, less damaging. And the acetaminophen, I mean, 
the fact that your liver just didn't get out of dodge is uh, is amazing in and of itself. You know, I mean, and then, and I think that all goes back to that you're, you're playing with house money. You know, as so many of us are, <laughs> we're all we're all living on borrowed time. I mean, uh, at least I certainly feel that way. But fent- fentanyl, I, I my only experience with that, I can just remember vomiting as hard as I've ever vomited in my life and smiling the entire time. Like wow. it does, it does really. Uh, it's it's not a it's it, yeah it's not a light hmm. experience by any stretch of the imagination so um, yeah and, and then what when I it, started sucking on them that was when it all went downhill when I started putting them in my mouth uh, and that that was a different I mean that was a euphoric <laughs> heroin morphine type of high it was a um, but at the same time like I functioned on I would go to grad school I was in grad school at Cal Poly. Wow. Uh, after the Tijuana, this was after the Tijuana jail story, and um, I would go to class with a hundred microgram in each cheek That's and just insane. go, and I would just go <laughs> like I would feel good. Like it was the only thing that made me feel good. Yeah. And um, but <laughs> the kick from that, I mean, that for my tolerance to be that high where I was using that much, mm. uh, the kick was horrific. I mean, wow. the kick it was like a, a fifteen day kick where. Um, nothing helped. I remember the doctor asked me, he said, uh, you know, how, how many are you taking? And I, I was honest with him. He was like, I can't, cause they were going to try to transfer me from the fentanyl to the methadone and then step me step me off of methadone over mm-hmm. two weeks. And he said, I can't legally prescribe you the amount that's the equivalent of what the fentanyl you're taking. So your best bet is to just go cold turkey. No shit. Wow. So and do so, you remember, do you remember kicking that? Like, is that just with you like this? Kicking that those fifteen days, you can you just? I'll still never forget. I mean, it was. Like I just that. remember being curled up on the sidewalk, uh, oh. trying to like find a patch of sunlight. I, I couldn't. I mean, it, it, my body felt like I was imploding. It was, um, not and nothing, nothing uh, would make it feel better. I mean, there yeah. was, you know, there it was hell. It, were it you was in hell. a? Were you in a room like just at your house, or were you just like, what do you do? Or was this in recovery? Yeah. No. This, so this was this was in two thousand and uh, this was in January of two thousand and nine. My first time I went to rehab. Oh, gotcha. And so I went to the rehab, and at that point, like I wasn't really ready to get clean. I, mm, I, yeah. I was blaming everybody. It was everyone else's fault. The doctors overprescribed it. The pharmacist who gave it to me. The pharmaceutical industry. Like, it was everyone else's fault, but mine. And those were like real drug addicts in rehab. I wasn't one of them. You know, I, I, I just a total classic look for the differences. It's amazing. Um, and, you know, oh, you know, that chick, she's a, she's, you know, she smokes crank, like, uh, for some biker, like, with some bikers, like, she's, that's not me, or the guy putting a needle in his arm, uh, shooting up, like, despite the fact that what I was using was actually stronger than heroin, yeah. I would look at the heroin addicts as like, well, I'm not, at least I'm not one of them. I mean, it was so, it was so just fucked up, backwards thinking, upside down thinking, that, um, you know, but that's, that's what we do, isn't it? I mean, that's how, that's. When we're not ready, we'll find a reason to not be ready. Yeah. And, you know, when you talk about who, who comparing yourself, you mentioned earlier that, that when you started, it made you feel good and likable and able to, um, I don't know, participate in crowds and people like you were fun and funny. Um, what Was there a sensation? Were there sort of emotional, psychological th- things before that? Was there depression or anxieties that um, you were wrestling with or may still wrestle with? Yeah, I mean, there was uh, there, there are two events I talk about in the book with my uncle, and when he died, like I I was, I mean, 
my family wasn't home. Like it was, it was a mess. Right. And That's traumatic. Uh, I never really got help for that. Yeah. Um, I think you know my parents did the yeah. best they could, and my you know they felt horrible. And um, but I kind of refused any offers for you know hey do you want to talk to somebody about no I'm okay I'm good I'm good that's what that was my line I'm good and I just kind of stuffed it down hmm. and um, you know the, those there was a level of sort of self hatred I blamed myself for not of calling nine one one because if I and truth be told had I called nine one one when I found him he probably would have survived hmm. um, but ultimately that was his decision to make that day. And, uh, but I can see that now, now that I've worked a program and I've worked through some of this stuff, but at the time, yeah, there was some stuff that when I was numbing it, um, you know, it, it sort of made all of that hurt stop. The, 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 it's funny, you know, thinking about your uncle and the choice he made that day. And then that story you wrote about the Las Vegas doctor and the woman that died. And then this is your doctor who, my God, I can't believe someone's not going to buy the film rights to that either because what an interesting character he is. Yeah. But you. But I was curious to ask you, like, that the girl who died within that whole thing, do you it's, – it's almost like as if you, ex, you just sort of have to accept these people are going to die and there's just nothing you can do about it. Um, and is that kind of where you're at with both of that, your uncle yeah, and uh, this girl? Yeah, I mean – we make we make choices and there's consequences yeah. for our choices and um, like I, the doc I, it wasn't the doctor's fault or did you feel like he should have gone to jail? So on a, on a on a personal this is a, this is where it gets kind of interesting in terms of my own recovery. Yeah. So as as an individual in recovery, um, I have to take accountability and 100 percent accountability for all of my actions. Yep. And uh, so because of that, as an individual, I have to look at that doctor. I have to look at any doctor I've had and say, you know what? I manipulated them. I knew how to work them. I knew what they what to say. Um, and, and that's if I do that, then I can actually process it because yeah. I, I, I it's, it was my decision. Um, the flip side of that is as a writer, I have to be able to step back and look at things beyond just myself and my own story. Mm hmm. And sometimes that involves looking at my story from a, an outside perspective. And so if I look at my story from an outside perspective, I can say, you know, yeah, the, there should have been safeguards in place to, to um, stop this from happening. Or, or that's a doctor who's a trusted member of society and he was abusing that. Like if I look at my situation from a distance, I, I, that's how I see it. But as an individual in it, I can't I can't look at it that way. Yeah. He seemed like a total character, though, like right up there with uh, John Goodman in flight. I mean, just like <laughs> ultimate drug dealer. Oh, he was he was something else, man. He would. I'll never forget the first time I met him. Yeah. You know, and I talk about in the story. I went down to the ATM and I got some money out and I came back and I'll just never forget the church TV channel being on right. like full blast. And <laughs> he starts he starts speaking to me. And this Dr. Bass did this. He would speak in acronyms. And so he'd say, Jason, um, living inside of evil, lie, L-I-E. Hmm. Don't let lies creep into your life, Jason. And then he would pause and just look at me. <laughs> and what the hell do I say? Like, I'm trying to play along because he has right. the drugs I want. You know? I just need some drugs, man. <laughs> T-G-I-F. Right. right. Yeah, and, and but what was funny was like if, if it weren't for the actual drug dealing, like the hand, if there wasn't for the actual exchange of money for product, 
Yeah. You wouldn't like there were times he'd left and I and I swear to God, I sat on the edge of my bed and I wondered, does he know he's a drug dealer? Hmm. <laughs> That's interesting. Like, of course, he know, he's got to know. But does he know? Because he was like he was like a preacher. Yeah. You know, and and, and uh, it was such a surreal experience with Dr. Bass. Yeah, he was he was a character and that's exactly what he was like. in that reading story. that story, I'm like, I don't think he did know he was a drug dealer. I think that man felt that he was he was doing something either do helping people reach their bottom so they could find God faster. If he was truly a preacher or or had something like that, because it just you know what I'm saying? Yeah, like he he, and there were a lot of us. You know, I, I yes. used Gina's name, and uh, because I didn't, and I say it in the story, I didn't know Gina, but I knew her because I was her. Yeah, like yeah. we were doing the same thing, and then that's what the end of the story is sort of that open-ended question of why do some people make it and some don't? Yeah. You know, there's people that have done a lot less drugs and alcohol than we have that didn't make it. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, there's, but the the ultimate answer that I found. It, for that is I don't get to know those things yeah. and I'm okay with that mm-hmm. yeah wise words I mean I absolutely that's not that's not for us to know you know I, I would spend all my time uh, if, if I spent all my time thinking about that I would get nothing done and I would never come up with an answer you know there's, yeah. there's that's one thing with, the, with working a, a program for me has been learning the things I have control over and the things I don't and letting go of the things I don't, because with the things I don't, that's about 99% of the world. Yeah. Um, and they're going to do what they do, regardless of whether or not I stew over it or worry about it, or I'm anxious about it, or I'm, I'm scared. Like that, it's going to happen regardless, because I have no control of the situation. But what I do have control over is how I approach it and how I let it affect me. And so, you know, even like when we were talking earlier about the, this TV uh, development deal, mm-hmm. um, I've I've really every step of the way just sat back and enjoyed it sure. and, and really allowed myself the chance to soak this in and think like, you know what, there are people who never get this opportunity, mm-hmm. who've been writing a lot longer than I have and never get this opportunity. Like I'm 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 blessed. Mm-hmm. Like this is a blessing and I want to enjoy it. And so with this uh, 180, um, what, what's your relationship with your family like? Are they are they still around or? Uh, yeah. So my I mean, mom and dad are you talking about like from the characters in the story? No, I'm talking about like your mom and dad and, and uh... yeah. So my mom and dad, uh, they, we have a great relationship. Um, we've talked through, they've read my stuff. It was weird knowing my mom read the book because I, I tell a story about when I lost my virginity <laughs> uh, because it was drug related. <laughs> and so that's always a weird thing. Yeah. Um, but you know, she read it and she really liked it. Uh, but of course she's my mom. Uh, but, sure. um, you know, uh, my son's mom who in the book tells me, you're never going to see your son again, you're garbage, you're a drug addict. Mm. Uh, she and I, uh, her husband and her, she got married and my wife and me, um, actually we all get along. We, we That's hang great. out, we make sure the kids see us being cordial and, and we go to barbecues together and, and, uh, you know, or they'll come over for dinner or whatever, you know, just the kid, it's very important to me that my, that my son sees that, you know, I don't want him growing up in a, a household where the parents hate each other. Mm-hmm, and so, um, you know, the, the fact that that happened, like is, it will show you the miracle of being clean mm-hmm. of what can occur. Absolutely. Um, you know, because, you know, sh- they had every right to write me off and never want to talk to me again. And when I got clean, 
I wanted the life I have now, the relationship I have now with them. I wanted that then because I'm so used to instant gratification as a drug addict. Right. I'm so used to if I want something, I get it now. If I want a feeling, I get it right now. You know, hard work and patience that that was never in my vocabulary. And so the journey in recovery has really allowed those relationships to to really flourish um, because they, they they saw a change in me. And there were so many times where the only hope that I had in, the, you know, on days when I didn't think I could make it was seeing how much they their perception of me was changing. And I found hope in that. I found, you know, life in, in how they were treating me differently than they were before. And, and so there are a lot of times that that relationship, my relationship with them, the rest of the rest of society sort of kept me clean. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, um, and then, yeah. And then what's, what's fascinating too, is what you're doing with, with the real edition is sort of, I think pro- providing that opportunity for a lot of people to, um, see themselves reflected and to be the person that holds up the mirror, which is pretty cool. There, there obviously is something just so basic about sharing these stories, you know, just getting this off your chest and, and it, especially people who are like family members or whatever, it just, it, there's so many great stories out there. I'm surprised at how many great stories happened in your addiction. I look back at mine, I can barely remember anything. And you, and you <laughs> have got so many, so many great ones all from all over the world. Yeah, my journey feels kind of pedestrian, but but that but that said, you know, I mean, sharing your story and telling your story is one of the fundamental tenets of recovery mm-hmm. in whatever whatever form it takes, you know. Um, so I think it's really cool that you're providing that platform and providing that example, you know, showing people that you can tell these really visceral um, gut punch, as Chris said, mm-hmm. stories without resorting to really florid. You know, you're not mm-hmm. asking people to become writers; you're asking them to tell their stories in whatever way they feel most mm-hmm. comfortable and natural doing so. Yeah. And I think in doing something like that, you sort of have to, you have to model what you're looking for. Yeah. And, um, fortunately, you know, I was able to do that with some of the things that I've written, um, and sort of show, look, this isn't a site to glorify. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, this isn't a glorification. Um, it's, and it should be real. And, and there are times it's going to be dark. Mm-hmm. Um, but then that's okay. Um, you know, I, nobody wanted the T1 at jail store to end the waiting. Mm. Like nobody did. Yeah. And nobody, nobody wants that guy in that story to go back and buy drugs after everything right. he just been through. Yeah. But the truth is that's what happened. Right. And, and so I think there's an element of honesty. Absolutely. Um, that even when it makes you look bad, you, you've got to, you've got to put it out there. And, exactly. um, you know. And that's, uh, yeah, I mean, that's exactly it. That's why, yeah, that's the whole reason why I, I set up that, that section, which wasn't there initially on the site of a past imperfect. It's to share those stories because, you know, one, it's okay t- to look into the darkness. You know, a lot of people say, don't look back. Uh, I, I forget what the, the aphorism is, but, um, but sometimes, you know, if you're doing it in a healthy way, if you're doing it, um, if you're doing it to, um, to illustrate something and to share it, um, I think it's okay. If you're dwelling there, if you're if you're still um, wrestling with it somehow, then yeah, it's probably you know you need to work through it and move on. But uh, you know, I think it's okay to look in the darkness, and I, just as much as I think it's okay to laugh at um, it now, you know, um, yeah. that's that's where I think the strength. You know, we've gained that strength to be able to look back and laugh at it, and and I think that's great. So. 
And we definitely laughed at some of your story tonight. So, um, well, I mean, and that's the thing—you have to be able to laugh at yourself, right? And um, I mean, you, it, you writing about it, you almost have to walk that really fine line of being able to laugh at yourself mm-hmm. um, while still taking it seriously. Yeah. And as sometimes writers go too far in one direction, um, and I, I think you know you have to be able to look at yourself. You have to be able to be honest and self-deprecating. But, um, you know, when it comes to like the real edition or, um, you know, whether it be I I, I hope that what happens online and the online community, Mm -hmm. um, whether it be, um, you know, what you're talking about or the real edition Mm -hmm. or anybody else's site, it's not a zero sum game. It's not, you know, I think this is something we can all work together with. Absolutely. Um, because I think the end goal um, is so important, and um, you know, you see some, you see, you'll see um, uh, certain websites that sort of pop up, and and they sort of uh, they don't like working with other right. recovery sites, mm-hmm. and that's a shame. Yeah. You know, I think that's a shame. I think I think there's room for all of us because there's an audience for all of us. Yeah, there are definitely people that build walled gardens in in this area, and that's you know that's okay, I guess. But um, you know, I appreciate the opportunity to share my story on the real edition, and you know, your Tijuana tale was the first serialized story on uh, clean and sober. You know, I did a three parter, and that was um, you know, in a way, fun to do to 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 tell that story over time um, on our site. So. Uh, I think it's great, and I hope we we you know find the opportunity to to do more things together in the future. So, um, yeah, I mean the sky's the limit. Really, yeah. the future is sort of it is what we make it, right? And and I think um, there, I mean, if we look at the current state of the the drug epidemic in the United States right now, um, it's it is it's going to get a lot worse before it gets better. And, and know, yeah. No, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, and I think what's interesting, and maybe it's just because I've become aware of it, maybe it's, it's, and it's not fair to say, but I think I said this last episode too, but it feels like recovery is having a moment. Um, and it feels like the, the nature of sort of, I guess, to some degree, our generation, the, the ability to share without shame and to do it um, very publicly online, I think, you know, is going to, is a significant part of, um, you know, of, of mitigating some of that, um, you know, just, I, I think it, it's helping people find us. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the epidemic is just insane. It's nuts. Right, speaking of which, are you going to uh, DC in October? Uh, are you inviting me? <laughs> well, well, no, uh, well, I'll tell you what I told uh, Shane from Not My Kid. It's like, I think you have enough fans that maybe you can do a GoFundMe and they, they'd send you. Um, but uh, no. what's in DC in, in oh, October? Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, uh, Unite to Face Addiction. Um, it's the the primary organizer is Greg Williams um, of the Anonymous People uh, okay. fame, and uh, essentially it's it's the way I describe the shorthand I use to describe it is it's the Million Man March for um, Addiction Recovery and Prevention, and it's shaping up to be. Um, you know, the place to be on October 4th if you're involved in addiction recovery and prevention. And uh, so we're, we're going. The Since Right Now podcast is going. Um, I know a number of the people I'm involved with on social media are going. And uh, we're actually, we've had the communications director on once sort of as a, as a 
in a personal side, and then we're having him again on uh, in about a month, I think, uh, as uh, representing the organization. So, uh, well, think about. Cool. It. Yeah, I'll definitely look into that. That could be that would be great. Yeah, I mean, certainly a good place to um, to network and to you know add your your presence to uh, you know the movement. So, uh, what do you think? Anything? Uh, anything else? Yeah, well, it's the book just recently came out because I remember I looked. We were going to get it, and then it said you could future order, but it literally must have come out in the last week, right? Yeah, it came out July sixth. July sixth. Okay, cool, awesome. Congrats to that. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Yeah. That's exciting. It's really exciting. It's the, yeah. the whole process of putting a book out there, especially yeah. something that's so deeply personal. It's a yeah. little. Uh, you never know how people are going to react to it. Right. And I can't uh, wait to read it. I mean, if it if it's anything like this, I read a couple of the short sto- their stories, and they're fantastic. So I'm looking forward to reading it. Cool. Yeah. That let me know what you think. <clears throat> I will. All right, man. Well. Um, I'm sure we'll uh, be in contact uh, on the interwebs, and um, yeah, let us let us know uh, if not before then. Um, what if you end, if you think you're going to be in uh, DC, and we'll definitely have to hook up and and uh, meet in person. We'll do a we'll do a podcast. You can meet my business partner Matt. Okay, cool. Yeah, we're definitely we're bringing our road equipment, and uh, we're we're gonna capture stuff over there. So uh, very cool. Yeah. Well, well, thanks, uh, thanks for making the time. I really, uh, you know, appreciate it. it's been it's been an absolute pleasure. And you know, consider consider us fans. Consider me a fan, certainly. Um, oh, thank you. That means a lot. Thank you. And uh, no, we we deeply appreciate it. Right on. Well, I have a feeling our uh, our paths will be intertwined in the future, and I think that's a really good thing. Excellent. Yeah, cool. Cool. Thanks, Jason. Thank All you, right, Jason. Jason. Thanks. Eating coffee. How cool is that? The official coffee of the Sense Radio podcast.